Do you remember reading The Thief by Megan Whalen Turner? What she does with words just blew me away. Like the way she could just take one sentence and there'd just be so much tension in it. And you know the narrator's lying to you and you know something's up, but you don't know what it is. That's Roseanne A. Brown, whose young adult fantasy debut, Song of Wraiths and Ruin, is set in a fictional world inspired by West Africa. I love the voice of Jen. I just love that first person, the voice of the character and the sort of layers of trickery. Australian writer Garth Nix published Sabriel, the first book in his Old Kingdom series, 25 years ago. This is a book about a very impulsive young thief who lands himself in jail and is released on the understanding that he will steal something for the King of Sunnis. That's Megan Whalen Turner. Like Sabriel, The Thief came out in 1996. The five other books in the series cover intrigue and geopolitical struggles across three small kingdoms, Atolia, Sunis, and Edis, caught in the tug of war between their larger and more dangerous neighbors. In the most recent book, Return of the Thief, which came out in the fall of 2020, the Mede Empire invades. And beware, if you haven't yet dug into these books, this episode may contain spoilers. Megan developed an entire universe for this book, but I was curious. When she was writing The Thief 25 years ago, what came to her first? So there's a moment when Jen is revealed to be not nearly as inept a swordsman as he first appeared. And that's the moment that for me was the very beginning of the story. It's a great premise, but Garth says, good fantasy is not just about the story. It's about the reality of everything, you know, the people, the world, everything about it. And that certainly comes through in The Thief. We're looking at The Thief 25 years on. Megan Whalen Turner's deeply believable world is so richly built and pleasurable. It's something the readers come back for. Detailed world building like Megan's is critical in fantasy. It is often what helps fantastical elements feel grounded. It's set in a world that looks a lot like ancient Greece, but it has a more Byzantine feel. So they've got gunpowder and they have window glass and compasses and printing presses. And they also have a pantheon, much like ancient Greece, but these are gods that I invented. The people worship those gods, but they don't necessarily believe in them. They certainly don't expect to have them appear on their doorstep. At least the thief, Jen, approaches religion in that way. I think my absolute favorite scene is the moment where he sees all these statues of the gods and he's like, oh man, this is creepy. And then he realizes, oh no, these are not statues. He's not that religious, but you see just his understanding of the world shift and the idea that he's facing something so much bigger than him and everything he's been through. So how did Megan build such an interesting, dynamic and deep world? I couldn't even really create it in my head until I had an idea of where it was set. And the one thing I knew was that I didn't want to set it in Middle-earth. Megan is a lifelong fan of the Lord of the Rings series and of Tolkien's fantasy. But while she felt she had a lot of access to lands that looked like the Shire, she couldn't use them as the setting for her book. He'd already done that. For the field of fantasy, I would never want somebody to read my version of Tolkien. And then they read Tolkien and they think, oh, 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 been there, done that. And then of course, I I went right out and I wrote a quest novel where a group of companions all traveled together, which just goes to show it's a lot harder to get away from your childhood influences than you might think. 
Megan's resistance to a Middle Earth knockoff proved fruitful. She's come up with a fantasy world that feels completely unique. So I'm looking for a world that is both unfamiliar and yet really familiar at the same time. And in 1993, I traveled to Greece. And I looked at Greece and I said, that's what I'm looking for. Megan was able to pull some elements from Greece, including the concept of a pantheon of gods. She also borrowed the Lion Gate in the ancient city of Mycenae. And that's what I was thinking of when I described my little party of adventurers in the thief riding out from the city underneath the massive gate. There is a Sea of Olives around the Temple of Delphi in Greece. There are historical events that are mirrored in the books. But, you know, there's all of those old Greeks, Plato and Socrates and Euripides. One of my favorite books is Pritchard's Ancient Near Eastern Texts. It's a compilation of like every fragment of every hieroglyph uh, that they've ever managed to translate. But her extensive research on ancient Greece could only get Megan so far. My story's not set in ancient Greece. And what I was looking for in all of these things was inspiration at some point. You need to break reality. But also in terms of history, one of the things about history is that unlike a story, history doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And stories do. There was another moment from history that Megan wanted to contend with, one closer to home. I had an eye-opening conversation with a relative of mine when she was very young. It was probably the first war in Iraq when Saddam Hussein's army swept into Kuwait. And she said something along the lines of, we shouldn't have to go and fight in Kuwait. We should take care of things in our own country, which has a sound reasoning. But of course, she didn't understand that our interest in fighting in Kuwait was not selfless. We wanted the oil. All of our countries in the entire world are connected to each other. The geopolitics in the world of the thief are as intricate as in real life and as resource reliant. This is another approach Megan took to her fantasy world that is different than Tolkien. When countries go to war, it's not usually because there's just some bad person who has risen to power in Germany. It's because of a whole lot of reasons, and you don't usually see those reasons reflected in books for children and young adults. You usually just have that one bad villain. In the Queen's Thief universe, as in ours, every kingdom has their own motivations. Garth Nix, author of the Old Kingdom series, also began with extensive research. One story that I wanted to tell, a realistic historical novel set in the First World War, which I didn't continue with because I felt that I wasn't able to do it. At that time, I wasn't able to write it properly. But I think I took a lot of the things I was thinking about in that novel and I transported them across to Sabriel. Rosie's real-world inspiration was more contemporary. The inspiration for it was sort of the migrant crisis that was happening in West Africa at the time because I remember reading an article about a group of migrants who had drowned in the Mediterranean Sea on their way to Italy. It was just like hundreds of people just gone instantly. I remember the conversation around of people being like, if they don't want to face something so dangerous, they should have done everything the legal way. Ugh, just so much disdain and just, wow, y'all just truly don't understand what it takes for somebody to 
pick up their entire life and trek across one of the most dangerous deserts in the world, trek across the U.S. border, trek across all this to a place where they know people don't want them. And just for the chance that life might be better. Rosie's book, Song of Wraiths and Ruin, opens with Malik, a young Eshran refugee. The Eshrans are an ethnic minority looked down upon by all of Zaran. So Malik and his sisters carry fake papers and assume fake identities, hoping to be led into Zaran, the gleaming city on a hill. When we meet them, the siblings are crushed in a crowd that has gathered for the Solstasia celebrations, which mark the passing of a rare but regular comet. The belief systems in Wraiths are built on West African folklore. Myths are the place you kind of start with because the myths that you put into the story are going to tell your readers, oh, this is how the people of this world see not just the world around them, but themselves. Thor and Zeus and Nyame, which is a sky god among the Akan people, my mother's people, are all sky gods, but they're all interpreted and seen very differently, which is the different civilizations look at the same thing, the sky, right? And myths play an important role in the thief, not just their existence for the characters, but the act of oral storytelling. One of the things I particularly liked about them is that they don't all remember them the same way, or they've learned different versions of them, which is absolutely always the case throughout human history, that that you'll get divergent versions of the same myth. In this scene from The Thief, Jen is confronting the Magus on some points of error in a myth that the Magus had just related to the group. Yes, I said, letting my tongue run away from me. And you made a lot of mistakes. You aren't even pronouncing the name of the country right. The people on the mountains call it Edis, not Edis. And you left out the part where the earth cries when the sky god ignores her and turns the oceans to salt. I did. In Jen's world, as in ours, pronunciations can have colonial significance. Yes, I told you. My mother told me the stories when I was little. I know them all. And I know that they call the country Edis. As for that, Jen, I can tell you that Edis is the old pronunciation used before the invaders came. We've changed the pronunciation of many of our words since the time of the invaders. While Edisian pronunciations haven't altered for centuries, Edis is pronounced differently now, whatever the people of that country say. It's their country, I grumbled. They ought to know the right name for it. And that experience of when you're a person coming from a marginalized background and finding yourself in a situation where you're surrounded by the majority and realizing you're the only one who can defend where you're from and who your people are, and you can do your best to defend it and people still aren't going to get it, that was a small moment that really spoke to me. And what about the parts that the Magus's retelling left out? Even when a story gets passed down, what part gets left out is just as important as what part gets passed down, because what gets left out is just such a reflection on how values change and how people's understanding change. So how does Megan come up with such compelling myths for the Queen's Thief series? She writes them last. What happens is I get a sense of what the rest of the story demands, because you can't just stick any story in there. You want it to be a story that either reflects or deepens some aspect of the greater story that you're telling. Oral storytelling is also a formative part of how Megan starts each novel. My process is always to take the story that I want to tell and literally tell it to somebody. 
sort of like the ancient mariner, grab them by the arm, stare at them in the face, and tell them the entire book. And storytelling plays a big role in Rosie's book, Song of Wraiths and Ruin, as well. For me, because so much of West African folklore and history is passed down orally. We've had the concept of the griot, which is something that exists in the real world. And that also there's a griot character who plays a big role in my series. When I knew I wanted this to be set in a West African world, because that's where I know that's my heritage. I knew that storytelling had to be a big part of it because sort of my first understanding of fantasy didn't come through sort of traditional books or like movies in the way we think, but it came through folk tales. It came through these stories. In Wraiths, Karina is the princess and then Sultana of Zoran, and along with Malik, a point-of-view character. In the story, Karina and Malik are primed to kill each other. It's a kind of will-they-won't-they story. Just the idea of getting to write a girl, especially a Black girl who has so much power and who gets to be at the top of that society, with the very real fact that the majority of royalty did not get there by very good means. It's You have to do some very ethically and morally dubious things to get to the very top of society, as we've seen with lots of royal families in the real world. She knows their history. She knows the story of like, oh, we won this war and my ancestor, she led the forces of the war. So she was chosen as the next queen. Like she's been sort of spoon fed this very sort of standard fairy tale story. The same way myths shift to reinforce power structures, histories do too. Similar to how Megan's relative understood one narrative about the first Gulf War. And she starts to really slowly unpack like, oh, wait a minute, we won this war by what means? So what do you do when you've been given this privilege that and you haven't done anything to earn it, like you haven't really done anything to deserve it, but it's still yours. You can't get rid of it. It's a question all of us can be asking ourselves. Nothing will tell you more about a world than moving a character through it. Megan's characters in the Queen's Thief series face serious hardships, including irreparable physical injury, illness, and loss. It makes for moving stories, but was it hard, I wondered, for her to put her characters through all that? So, Rosemary Sutcliffe was a huge influence on me, not just now as a writer, but on me as a 10, 11, 12-year-old reading her for the first time. And, and I really think as the books go on, the significance of Sutcliffe just grows and grows and grows in the entire series. And Sutcliffe suffered from juvenile arthritis and spent most of her life in a wheelchair. And she wrote thrilling books but one of the ones that's probably best known today is The Eagle of the Ninth. And it's about a young man who is a centurion, and he's arriving for his first real posting and in, in, in command at a small fort in England. And he's got a whole plan for his life. He's going to serve 20 years in the Roman army, and he's going to get his payout as a veteran, and he's going to go back to Italy where his home is, and he's going to buy back the family farm. And then in his very first significant battle, he's so badly injured and his leg is so badly broken that it's unlikely he's ever really going to walk again. But he's certainly not going to be a soldier. And he has to replan his entire life. That happens in the first chapter of the book. And 
So you've got the whole rest of the book for him to go on a quest and have a friend and develop relationships and grow as a human being and all sorts of things. Because that crushing disability was not the end of his story. And it made me wonder when I read it for the first time, why is it that the person who is the hero of the story is always physically perfect. Rosie considered ableism when she crafted Malik, who suffers from anxiety. Oftentimes in fantasy, when we see mental illness and we see magic, one is sort of a metaphor for another. Like, oh, when this character has a panic attack, they shoot firebolts, yay. Or it's villainized. Like we see this a lot with Disney characters, particularly Disney villains, where the villains are coded as being anxious, depressed, schizophrenic, like just different various mental illnesses to justify why they're evil. And I really want to do a story where the character both has a mental illness and he has magic powers and they sort of inform one another. They definitely affect each other, but neither one is a metaphor for the other. They're both two separate things he's dealing with. Where are all of those people with one eye or one hand or a limp? I really wanted to raise the stakes for what can happen to a person in one of my stories because I felt like it was honest. So far, we've talked about how the real world can be inspiration for fantasy worlds, from climate to architecture to history to politics. We've discussed how a civilization's myths and religions can fill out depictions of the people, who they are broadly, and how they relate to each other socially. And we figured out how to create compelling and dynamic characters and how to let great harm befall them. But we haven't yet explored the most important element of a fantasy world, the magic. It has to be a world where it feels real and the way that that is normally achieved is that is that the writer gets to choose their own boundaries, but having drawn them, everything has to work within those bounds. There were some overriding principles I established very early on, which in the case of the Old Kingdom books is that Anselstier, the, the country to the south of the wall, has a sort of 1920-ish technology, World War One sort of technology, uh, and magic doesn't work. And then there's a wall which divides it from the Old Kingdom to the north. And in the Old Kingdom, uh, modern technology doesn't work, but magic does. In the Old Kingdom, there are two types of magic, charter magic and free magic. I actually wrote, you know, wrote charter magic, free magic down without really knowing what they were. And I worked out what they were as I wrote the story. They do certainly fall into a sort of almost classical view of an organized system of magic, a sort of raw power versus organized power, which is through so much fantasy and also through mythology as well. Rosie also had to clarify how magic would work in wraiths. In the first early drafts, the magic was kind of soggy. It was just kind of like heavy and bloated and it wasn't really making sense. And I think when it switched around was when I was thinking, I need a base rule that the magic in this world follows. All magic has to follow this one base rule. 
I was sort of thinking again about my own culture. I was thinking about the day name system we have among my mother's people. The day of the week you're born has great importance. And part of that is each day has a name associated with it. For example, I was born on Saturday, so my day name is Ama. So the idea that you could see a person's day name, you'll know exactly what day of the week they're born. You know, each of the days have different associations. You just know so much about them, right? Okay, I already know the seven day of the week system. I understand this very intimately. What if that system, it wasn't just sort of like symbolic power, but actual literal magical power. And then everything just clicked there. Seven gods, each one different day of the week, each one a different element. Okay, so a society where like you can actually kind of sort people into seven different classes, how would they structure that society? How would people align with the day of the week they were born? What do you do when you have a family where everyone has a different alignment to a different God? What do you do when people don't actually feel like they fit into their alignment? And like, once I had that base rule, everything else started flowing. But there's another way that magic works in wraiths. And it goes back to the way people in this society treat magic and to Malik's anxiety. His magic very much sort of heightens his anxiety, not because the magic itself is making him anxious, but because he knows in this world what it means to be associated with magic, and he's gone through it. He understands every time his magic is flaring up, he's putting himself in danger, he's putting his family in danger. Karina, she just doesn't think it exists. She just does not think magic exists, and she's like, that's for fairy tales and babies, ew. So could the gods of Jen's world, the world of the Queen's Thief, be considered a magic system? There are no magical fixes in this world. There's a lot of divine intervention, but in this world, what's done is done. You can't turn back time. Garth Nix's most recent book in the Old Kingdom series does a kind of time travel. The book, Tercial and Eleanor, goes back in time and follows the love story of Sabriel's parents. Eleanor is a Claire, a woman with visions of the future, a future that Garth has already written. Garth, like Megan, was very influenced by Tolkien and the world of the Lord of the Rings. Particularly the concept, which is so strong through that, of the cost of doing the right thing. That actually there is a cost to doing what needs to be done. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, ultimately, you know, Frodo, he suffers greatly for what he has to do and ultimately cannot settle in the Shire. He doesn't get to have the kind of happily ever after that you, you sometimes see in other stories. While magic and fantastical elements can get kids reading, the parallels to contemporary society can help young readers understand this world and can even give kids another way to see themselves. I wanted there to be things that they could see in the book that they could relate to and they'd be like, oh, yo, what Malik feels in that moment where he has to lie about where he came from so he's not actually attacked. I know what that feels like. I know how to go through that. I see you and it's not right. And like, it's not in your head. This is really happening. When they write new worlds, authors have to spin a lot of plates at the same time. Fantasy writers create an internal logic that links their landscapes with their region's weather, with government structures, religions, myths, social hierarchies, and the systems of magic that will work on the characters. This care and attention makes for great books, like Megan's Queen's Thief series, and like Rosie's second story in the Wraiths duology, A Psalm of Storms and Silence, due out in November of 2021 and like Garth's Tercial and Eleanor do out at the same time. But it also does something more. It makes a portal kids can get sucked into and can emerge from with more nuance and keen insights for making or remaking the world that we're all building together every day. Tell us what you think on Twitter, at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
your review could end up in our next newsletter, along with quotes, trivia, and updates about new episodes, which you can sign up for by visiting rememberreading.com. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins, Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Vishali Nayak, Lauren Levite, Shannon Cox, and Katie Dutton. We are grateful for the work of our editors, Virginia Duncan, Kristen Renz, Catherine Teagan, and Sarah Schoenfeld. Special thanks to Shaylin McDaniel. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Nicole Wills. Thanks for listening.